Hi there, I'm Gavin Crawford. I'm a writer, an actor, and a comedian. And for the last eight or nine years, I have been navigating life with my mother's increasing dementia. Has it been sad? Yeah. Has it been funny? Also, yeah. That's what my brand new podcast series, Let's Not Be Kidding, is about. It's the true story of my life as a comedian, my mom, and dementia. Let's Not Be Kidding, with me, Gavin Crawford. A new seven-part series from CBC Podcasts, available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Before we begin today, a content warning. This episode of The Big Story contains descriptions of sexual misconduct and assault. For as long as adults have had power over minors, there have been assaults, abuses, and worse. It is hideous and repulsive and, of course, criminal. To combat that, we have designed entire systems of reporting protocols and investigations to make sure the perpetrators are found and punished. More recently, we've also tried to do a better job ensuring that victims are supported and believed. That's how it's supposed to work, anyway. It doesn't always work that way. And sometimes, it goes so badly wrong that it cannot simply be written off as another incident, isolated or not. Sometimes, a story emerges that shines a light on just how far we still have to go in believing and protecting children and teens from those who would prey on them. This story just leaves you asking, how? How for so long? How is it even possible? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. This is The Big Story. Omar Mualam is a writer, an editor, and a filmmaker. He reported this investigation in McLean's magazine. Hello, Omar. Hi, Jordan. Why don't we start where your story does? Because it's kind of the beginning of this whole thing with Kelly Schneider in 1989. Who is she? Where is she? So Kelly Schneider is sort of your typical teenage girl. She's uh, 14 years old lives in Calgary in sort of a post-war, you know, suburban neighborhood. And she goes to a little junior high school called John Ware. Only about 300, 400 students go there. It's very much a neighborhood school. And she's very popular. She's sort of the, you know, the 1989 version of a, of a junior high it girl. Mm. Um, and she's also someone who's dealing with some body issues because puberty hit her pretty early. And she has a overdeveloped body and gets a lot of attention for it. And some of that attention starts to come from her grade eight teacher, this guy named Michael Gregory. At the time, who was Michael Gregory? What did anybody know about him? And, and when you say attention from her teacher, can you elaborate a bit? Sure. 
So Michael Gregory, at that time, he was a, a young outdoor ed math and science teacher, 26 years old, and he was hired by John Ware School right out of university because he had cultivated this personality as like a mountain man and, you know, an outdoorsman. And this was at a time in the mid-80s when public schools were very eager to start offering environmental and outdoor ed studies. So he was seen as like the perfect hire. And he got a lot of latitude for that. Um, he was a big draw for that little school. But he also had a very unusual personality. I mean, he was quite eccentric. He had this thing where he wouldn't let people take pictures of him because of some vague Mayan beliefs that cameras will steal your soul. And so if you look through yearbooks, he would usually submit some sort of caricature instead of like a yearbook portrait. And he also was quite juvenile. He had a penchant for shock humor, kind of on the Howard Stern side, which was, you know, popular maybe in the in the early 90s and late 90s, but still very inappropriate. And yet he was tolerated. Hmm. Um, He was tolerated as this maverick school teacher as this very relatable guy who can speak to kids in their own language. Right. The nickname that they had for him in the in the staff lounge was Mr. Popularity because when he would walk through the hallway, I mean kids wouldn't avoid him. They'd literally like fall into his orbit. You know, he would walk through those hallways like he owns the place, high-fiving kids, talking with them. Um, a lot of a lot of kids saw him as even the way into the in crowd, a way, you know, a, a validation of their coolness. And what happened between him and Kelly Schneider? So Kelly Schneider came to him after she'd been held back a grade. Um, she was very social and uh, to the point where it got in the way of her studies. And she was very relieved to have Mr. Gregory as her new grade eight teacher because he had a reputation for running a very lax class. The the what she describes it as a circus. I mean, it was not unusual for him to break out in horseplay and wrestle kids to the ground. Hmm. And also, it wasn't unusual for him to pick a girl as his favorite. And she became his favorite, his teacher's pet. And with that came some very confusing attention. He gave her a nickname, Canyon Meadows, which is a double entendre playing on a nearby neighborhood, as well as her you know, well-developed body in her last name, which was Meadows at the time. Mm-hmm. He once carried her, you know, during a volleyball practice, him and another gym teacher carried her by her shoulders to the showers and drenched her uh, fully clothed. Another time, she recalls, during an exam, he walked into the classroom and threw something at her and said, next time you're at, you're at my house, pick up after yourself. And as she unraveled it, she saw that it was a bikini. She'd never, at that point, she'd never been to his house before. I see. And it was embarrassing. It was humiliating, but it was also, you know, it was confusing because she was developing a crush on him. And, you know, soon enough, it escalated to inappropriate touching, which at first looked like very normal, tender, you know, touching, a, a hand on the shoulder in the halls. But then maybe, you know, a tap on her back as she cleaned the chalkboards. And then eventually a stroke of her leg as she sat in his truck making errands to Mountain Equipment Co-op to buy supplies for the outdoor ed program. Which kind of brings brings us to an unusual 
privilege that Michael Gregory had, which was he was allowed to spend a lot of time with students um, outside of school. He would uh, take them around in his personal vehicle, um, even bring them to his house. And he would, in the summers, he would plan these unsanctioned outdoor ed, like sort of field trips to scout hiking trails and future field trip locations. And he would bring his favorites on these. And that's where a lot of the abuse started to happen. Let's talk for a minute before we get to um, the next 20 plus years about specifically how far it went with Kelly and, and Gregory. What happened between them? How long did it go on? And, and when did it stop? Yeah, so Kelly's memory is blurry because like a lot of victims of child sexual abuse, um, she's, you know, blocked those memories, blurred them after years of self-denial as coping. But it began in grade eight and it ended sometime in grade nine. And during that time, she knows that it was a a full-on sexual relationship with her teacher. Uh, She told me that she thought of him as her boyfriend. Even though he was married, he told her that he was in the process of separation and divorce. And really, the only reason to keep it a secret was, you know, social norms and the fact that he was her teacher. But that's, that's how she saw him. And, you know, he kind of reciprocated that idea. He gave her jewelry. He wrote her letters with romantic tones to them, gave her a mixtape with, um, you know, sort of suggestive songs on it. So she, you know, she really saw them as, as being in a, in a relationship. She had no idea that this was, this was all just predatory behavior, that mm-hmm. he actually was developing a bit of a, a science for grooming and abusing girls. Tell me how it ended. So it ended quite abruptly. One day, he was dropping her off at home, and he asked if he could speak to her parents. And she said, yes. She thinks that maybe at the time he sensed that she was becoming maybe a little bit nervous about the relationship, that she was starting to turn down his uh, his advances a little bit more. And so maybe sensing that she was going to tell on him, he wanted to get to her parents first and get to them with a lie. So he went and he spoke to his her parents And he told them that she was bringing boys home at lunch and having sex with them. And when she found out what he had told them after he left, she got really upset. And to her credit, as a 14, 15-year-old girl at that time, had the foresight to go to her room and gather all the mementos and gifts that he'd given her and hand that over to her parents and say, this is the truth. This is what's going on. And her parents believed her. And as soon as possible, they went to the principal uh, or the principal's office at John Ware School, and they told them what was going on, that their daughter was having an inappropriate romantic relationship with her teacher. And naturally, the school fired him and charges were pressed, and that's the end of this story, right? That's the end of the story, except, of course, it's not. Because according to Kelly she was basically called a liar. The administrator who took that complaint uh, basically said that your daughter has quite the imagination and 
nothing really was done after that. She doesn't know if Gregory had gotten to the administration first. Maybe he sensed her growing doubts and he hoped to muddy her credibility with a fake story. She really doesn't know. But it's clear that this didn't get escalated to the superintendent as it's supposed to. And what happened afterward was she just had to continue going to school. And rumors had spread uh, among students that you know, she had gotten Gregory in trouble and even rumors that she had gotten him in trouble because they were in a romantic relationship and she told on him about it. Um, that's how that's how well known it was and presumed it was. The only thing the school agreed to do uh, for her care was to move her to another homeroom. But of course, she still had to face her abuser every day. She still had to deal with listening to people talk about him and about him and her constantly. Eventually, you know, she moved on the way that a lot of sexual abuse victims do. She downplayed it to herself and to others and eventually transferred to a different school. The memories faded with time. You know, occasionally something would trigger them, but she took some comfort in reassuring herself that she was the only one. And of course, we now know that she was not the only one. She was one of at least 20 and likely more. So maybe without, you know, referencing specific acts of abuse, can you tell me about the broad strokes of those years? What were the patterns? Uh, what was he doing and and how did it end? Yeah, we don't need to go into the lurid details, but it's very clear that he was preying on specific vulnerabilities, you know, girls with eating disorders, uh, a history of self-harm, maybe a dysfunctional home. You know, he would find basically girls who were marks, girls who needed or, or, or desired some validation. Part of his grooming was also testing their boundaries with shock humor or, you know, manipulating, badgering them into undress with him. And and if they wouldn't cooperate, then they would be iced out and sort of pushed out of this clique that he was creating. He would also encourage teens to be sexually active with each other, hmm. you know, positioning himself as this sex-positive, progressive teacher who will talk to you about things your parents never would. But he was actually using teenagers, their, their very age-appropriate relationships to kind of get girls to be sexually active so that he can then prey on them. And, you know, he would use boys to sort of prime girls for his advances. And then once he learned that a girl was sexually active, would start to bully their boyfriend, belittle them, and basically try to redirect their sexual attention to him. And the worst thing is that Starting around 2000, he faked cancer. He started telling really everyone that he had prostate cancer. Hmm. It, it, it's clear that he used it to get, um, get time off work. He took a couple of medical leaves. But he also used it to manipulate the girls into giving him sexual favors. And I don't want to give the lurid details, but I think it's this is important to know. He told girls basically, that orgasms were required for his pain relief and that his wife was leaving him, a lie that he had told for over a decade, and basically leveraged that pity to get sexual favors from them. And 
it's just, it's horrendous. I mean, it's so hard to, to fathom, but he did this with so many girls. I mean, by the early 2000s, he was actively abusing about seven girls and grooming more. And he would keep them from talking with each other by socially isolating them. And if one, as one did, start to talk, he silenced her with suicidal threats, sent her a text message of a handgun that presumably he was going to use on himself if he was caught. Now, how this all comes to a head is on this year-end outdoor ed field trip in 2005, one of the supervising teachers notices this high school girl, one of, a former John Ware student who had returned as sort of a chaperone, which Gregory was known to do, noticed that she was kind of acting out of character and seemed scared. And so she approached this girl and you know, asked her what was going on and found out that over that weekend, Gregory had been coercing her and another teenager to meet with him alone um, by the river. And when they didn't want to, he started making suicidal threats and it really rattled them. And they did meet with him and he gave them alcohol and got them in a canoe. And I don't know what happened after that, but I know that once the girls told the, the, the other teachers, they went into action and they, they devised a, a, a safety plan to basically try to get his keys from him, get him back to Calgary from the Rockies hmm. by sending him in a canoe back to, back to the, the buses and personal vehicle with um, some older boys. And he never, he never went back to work at John Ware again after that. But there was a, an investigation um, into it by the Alberta Teachers Association. And some students were interviewed, including those girls. And Gregory had gotten to the students and basically coerced them into changing their stories to remove any mention of the gun or the alcohol in incident reports and got to at least one other girl to tell a lie that she was never abused um, or that she was never in a sexual relationship with him, that he only did good things for her. So though the ATA couldn't corroborate, you know, any rumors of uh, sexual exploitation, they found ample evidence of terrible misconduct, which he did plead guilty to enough for a two-year suspension and um, and giving up his his ATA membership. And without that, he couldn't teach in public schools anymore. Now, to my knowledge, once he was no longer employed, the school board never did anything. They never took any, any further action. Um, in fact, it seems that they let rumors that he died of cancer run rampant and explain his absence. Basically, it seems like it may have been swept under the rug. And once it was known um, what he had done, the ATA sat on the evidence that it did have, keeping it sealed as it is still today, instead of passing their files over to police, who have since said that there was enough evidence in that file to begin processing charges back in 2006. And this allowed him 15 more years of potential abuse. And though we don't know if there were, you know, our new victims from that period, he certainly was in a position to because he'd started a landscaping company and started hiring students again. 
But that was in 2006, and that's that's where the story, you know, ends until the charges come 15 years later. Okay, so 15 years after he lost his ability to teach, how did police finally become involved then? A couple of students, one named Jocelyn Alice and another one I'll, I'll call Sonia, who were victims of his grooming and abuse. You know, they were tired of dealing with the, the trauma and maybe, in, you know, invigorated by the Me Too movement, decided that they were going to go to police and um, tell them about what this man had done to them and what they think that he had been doing to other friends of theirs. I don't think they had any idea how big it was going to get at the time. But as the case evolved, eventually the Calgary police had six victims solidly identified and they charged Michael Gregory in February 2021 on 17 counts of uh, sex-related crimes. And Michael Gregory, who often used suicidal threats to silence his victims, ended up killing himself five days after the charges. And so the possibility of justice was basically you know, taken from, from these victims. The police concluded he wasn't a threat to the public. And so he was released pending a court appearance. And in those five days, he went to Quadra Island, BC, where he had a vacation property and he killed himself. And now the only shot at justice that these victims have is through a civil class action suit. And that's where we are today. And in that suit, there are three plaintiffs. Kelly Schneider is one of them, as well as a, a woman named Erin McKenzie, who was abused from uh, around 1999 to 2002. And a boy, Cody Bonkowski, who was uh, physically and emotionally harmed by, by Gregory, like many males. And as of this moment, there are 30 former John Ware students, more than half of them women, who are part of this, this class action suit against the Calgary Board of Education, as well as the estate of Michael Gregory. I'm not going to get you to go into any more of the intimate details because that's upsetting enough. And to know that there are uh, dozens or more victims is enough. But I do want to ask you, how does this happen? And I have a few questions about that. First of all, uh, when we talked about Kelly, you know, you mentioned that even the other teachers had a nickname for him, that he was Mr. Popularity, that he was taking students uh, out of school to go shopping and stuff like that. What did the other teachers at the school think? It seems impossible that that kind of behavior could go unnoticed by his colleagues. Yeah. Um, what did the other teachers know? Well, I've spent a lot of time reading legal documents and have interviewed six victims. And I've also interviewed a handful of former colleagues, some on the record and some as background sources. And it is very clear that people knew or ought to have known that there was sexual impropriety going on. How so? Well, there's a couple of anecdotes that I can share. There were a couple of women who claim that this one teacher had told them to be careful around Gregory. That had, didn't go into details, but that teacher had seen those girls getting close to him, had seen presumably what was grooming behavior, and had warned them not to get close to him. Other teachers, according to victims, had witnessed him 
grabbed their butts and did nothing about it. Another one had walked into his classroom and seen a girl sitting in his lap and then said, uh, according to the victim, I'll give you two a minute and then left. There were also, I have found at least six parental complaints about inappropriate behavior, including the Schneider families, but also, you know, sexual harassment, bullying, really alarming stuff. I mean, the parents of one boy who had his face uh, rubbed in manure by Gregory yes. had come forward with this, you know, this complaint of a, of a violent abuse and humiliating abuse. And apparently nothing, no action was taken. And uh, like Schneider, that kid just eventually ended up moving to a different school. I know this is um, the subject of a lawsuit right now, so you probably have to be careful. What does the school say about how this could happen for decades? Publicly, as far as I know, they have not said anything. I've looked at minutes from, from the uh, school council to see if, if the publicly elected school trustees have said anything. All legal matters are discussed in-house. I tried for multiple interview requests to get comments from the school board, even just to, to have them um, cooperate in the fact-checking process, and they would not. The only statement that I was given was basically one line, which is the Calgary Board of Education takes the allegations very seriously. I mean, they also said that because the matter is before the courts, we can't comment on it. But of course, that's not true. You can comment on it. They choose not to comment on it. I tried to uh, contact 20 board employees, including the seven elected school trustees who are all women. The chief superintendent, Christopher Yusey, they all either ignored my messages or redirected them to a media liaison who basically told me to back off. Hmm. Not in those words, but to, to basically stop asking employees any questions. And that person even, you know, <laughs> did something I've never experienced as a journalist, which is to go uh, over my head and, and email the editor-in-chief of McLean's to, you know, quote-unquote, reinforce this message. The position and the, the response is quite baffling. So all we can really determine about their response is from their statement of defense. And the statement of defense is an interesting strategy because, you know, it's, it's basically a series of ever higher barriers for the complainants to hurdle. It starts with a blanket denial of each and every allegation. And these are some allegations that he even admitted to in his guilty plea with the ATA's investigation. Now, if those allegations are proven, their statement of defense says, then the CBE, the Calgary Board of Education, was ignorant of Gregory's actions and the abuses they claim occurred outside of supervision. And if that's disproven, then the victim suffered no losses or damages. And it just goes on like that. And it seems like at the heart of this, the CBE is making the claim that they owed no duty of care to the children who attended its school, which to me flies in the face of common sense. Now, the goal here, I think, is to exhaust the plaintiffs and to reach an out-of-court settlement. This case is not the only one playing out in this country or in North America. It might be the most extreme case, though, but most of these, these cases end this way with an out-of-court settlement. 
And it's something that we should be paying a lot of attention to because I think they're only going to increase. Right. There was a recent report that came out from the Canadian Center for Child Protection that counted the number of reports about teacher-student sexual exploitation and grooming. And it has almost doubled in Canada since 2017, which is around when the Me Too movement started. And there's a similar trend in the United States as well. The U.S. Department of Education found a more than 50% increase. So as the frequency of these reports increase, I think so will the number of uh, suits and civil suits. That's incredibly troubling to hear. And it leads into the last question that I want to ask, which is simple. When you talk to people in these organizations who, who work on this stuff, what do they say we need to be aware of? What do parents and teens need to watch for? Um, obviously, a lot of this stuff is going unreported or undiscovered. What can we do about it? Well, you know, one of the things was that Gregory was given too much latitude with how he conducted his classes and fostered personal relationships. You know, he was allowed to keep his door closed and obscure the window to his door so that no one could see inside. You know. I think schools need to clamp down on that kind of secretive behavior or, you know, anything that sort of counters the the sort of transparency that is needed for them to monitor what's going on in classrooms. I think that parents and people in the public should learn how to spot the signs of teacher-student exploitation and grooming, and the Canadian Center for Child Protection is a great resource for that. Once they feel like there is something to report, then they should report it to the disciplinary body that oversees teachers in their province. Now, you don't have to be a teaching professional to do that. Any member of the public can. In Alberta, for the time being, it's still the ATA, though, as of January 1st. Those duties will then be transferred to the Alberta Teaching Profession Commission, which was created by the government to address teachers' conduct and disciplinary matters, taking them out of the hands of the, the teachers' union. And this was done specifically because of the Gregory case. And I think that parents should also go to administration, to the, the principal, with any complaints or suspicions. And they should ensure that there's an incident report that is documented and passed on to the superintendent. They should ask for a copy of that incident report. Otherwise, you could end up possibly with a situation like the CBE, where it's apparent that few, if any, of the parental complaints were properly documented and communicated. Omar, thank you for all your work on, on this file and everything else uh, that it entails. Thank you for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. Omar Mualam, writing in McLean's. That was the big story. Soon, it will be the end of the year. And as we often do, we'll be putting together some special episodes to go through, well, to go through a year that feels like five, just like the year before it felt like 10. We've got our own ideas and we'll be sharing some of our favorite stuff with you. But in the meantime, if you have any requests for things we should talk about at the end of the year, any guests you'd like to hear discussing the entirety of 2022. We are, of course, taking suggestions as always. You can send us those suggestions by visiting thebigstorypodcast.ca and clicking on Contact Us. 
You can also email us, hello at thebigstorypodcast.ca. You can find us and DM us on Twitter at thebigstoryfpn. And you can call with an old-fashioned phone, even a rotary dial one, 416-935-5935, and just tell us. The Big Story is available in every podcast player. There is a premium ad-free version available in Apple Podcasts. But of course, this podcast is still free in every single podcast player and on your smart speaker. Just ask it to play The Big Story Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow. Tomorrow.